Hello and welcome to the Artsy Podcast. I'm Isaac Kaplan, joined this week by Associate Editor Abigail Kane. Hey, Isaac. Hey, Abby. And we're also joined by a special guest today, Heather Bendari, co-founder of a new curatorial collective called The Remix. She's also a consultant and educator. Hey, Heather. Hi, Isaac. Heather is also the co-author of Artwork, a guide on how to make it as an artist in the United States. The book draws on interviews with 140 established artists and art professionals. The book first came out in 2009, but a second updated edition was published this year and hit shelves last month. It's really needed, I think, because if you kind of look at some of the stats around being an artist these days, they're pretty, uh, I don't want to use the word dismal, but dire. Difficult. I think dire, dire is a fair word Definitely to say. A, a challenging word beginning with the letter D. <laughs> these were compiled by an LARB article. The median income of those with art degrees who make their living as artists in New York City in 2012 was $25,000. Uh, a living artist in the United States only has a point zero 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 six percent chance of receiving a solo exhibition at moma um i could keep going but i think that's all we can stomach for now you know against this challenging backdrop uh, artists are becoming increasingly more professional they're thinking about themselves more as entrepreneurs as a way to kind of navigate these challenges uh, heather your book artwork is a guide on on professional practices and and how artists can kind of maybe think about a lot of the skills that are crucial to being successful but aren't taught necessarily as part of the creative curriculum in art school. But I guess one place to begin, you know, I think professional practices uh, is a term that's kind of thrown around increasingly these days. What actually happens in a professional practice class? What does it look like? What do you, what would you learn? Well, I think that professional practices classes are different in different places. Um, in an ideal situation, you already know what your goals are or you're going to a professional practice class to figure out your goals, um, your definition of success, and then sort of picking and choosing the tools that you're going to use to um, achieve your goals. So um, there are a lot more professional practice classes out there now than there were in 2009 when the uh, first edition of the book came out which is a great thing, but it's also something to parse through now. <laughs> you have to figure out exactly what you need um, to be able to get the tools that will actually help you. I mean, some of the stuff is super nitty gritty. Mm-hmm. Um, I, you know, I was flipping through the book um, earlier today on the subway uh, to work. <laughs> and I mean, there's stuff like how to write a contract or how to, how to mm-hmm. understand a contract, how to pack your artwork, like how to ship it. Right. Right, Yeah. This book is not a page turner. Um, It's not something you would read from the first page to the last page. It is not fiction, um, not a novel. So uh, the things that are in there are pretty nitty gritty in most uh, cases, like how to pack artwork. Um, uh, A lot of people that I interviewed for the book talked about their pet peeves and things that they wished artists could do. They wished artists knew were important. Um, and a lot of those involved things like packing your artwork or putting together a proper consignment form or keeping track of inventory. So not interesting topics, but they're really necessary topics. Um, so professional practices now, I think, runs this huge gamut where it's everything from that really nitty gritty to um, courses and discussions, conversations about how to make your practice sustainable. So those are obviously much more heady conversations and about systemic problems in the art world, things that need to be changed on a, a really um, broad, wide level, uh, high level. But um, there are also these really important, tiny little details that need to be taken care of. I'm kind of curious, when you wrote the first edition of the book in 2009, what did the 
art world landscape kind of look like back then? How did professional practices sort of fit into that? Right. So I, I wrote it in uh, 2009 with a friend of mine, Jonathan Melber, uh, who was an arts lawyer at the time. And we wrote it together because at, in 2007, actually, when we figured out we wanted to do this, um, a lot of grad school classes, undergrad classes didn't even mention professional practices. And I got my MFA in um, visual arts and painting. And it had never really been mentioned. And I felt myself, when I came to New York, I was at a great loss <laughs> and I didn't know what to do. And so when I started working in galleries, I was learning all this information um, piecemeal and only because I was in the room where people were talking about these things. And I wasn't on the side of an artist. I was on the side of a gallerist. So I was able to hear very frank discussions about artists and what artists were doing and what they should be doing or what people thought they should be doing. Um, so I decided to be very transparent about these conversations conversations and also and bring to the fore these details because I would have greatly benefited from having a resource to look at when I first arrived here. Uh, Jonathan felt the same because he only saw artists who had gotten themselves into a situation where they needed legal help. And mm. no one wants to ever find themselves in a situation where they need legal help. And the thing was that most of the artists could have avoided that need for legal help if they had simply written one thing down or had one conversation that they didn't feel comfortable having because of the power dynamic in the art world. So the power dynamic was such at the time, I felt, where galleries and curators and um, or the arts administrators had the power and the artists felt like they did not have power, even though they've always had power. It's just you... They just didn't think they had it. So um, we decided to write this stuff down, make it more transparent so that artists would gain the confidence to move forward more smartly, I guess, in their careers. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, this notion of power dynamics, kind of preventing uh, the professionalization of the art world or also, you know, the idea that the, the things that, you know, you'd be expected to talk about in a business environment just aren't discussed because everyone's you know so nervous that they're going to lose what little they've managed to acquire or struggle to acquire because it's very, so difficult to be an artist and there there were even some people who you who you said didn't talk to you for your first book because they were interested in not demystifying this so to is it right to sort of think that with that demystification with these kind of books the power dynamic can can change I think it has. I think too, in some circles it hasn't, um, and it won't for a while. But in a lot of circles, I think it has changed. I think a lot of gallerists, curators are more aware of their relationship to artists and how indebted they are to artists for their jobs. Um, and also how much artists can help them in the promotion because promotion of artwork and exhibitions and all kinds of things has changed so dramatically in the last 10 years. And now you need, everyone needs to be on board promoting something by, via social media, bringing their friends, things like that. So um, on a very base level, I think the gallerists and curators, the people with the quote unquote power from before are feel like they're more on the same level and the artists know that they have more um, of a leg to stand on when they ask for something. That said, I still go to panel discussions and studio visits and all kinds of things where artists are still asking the exact same questions. So it's gotten through to some people, but not all. So I wrote a story a few I guess this was, was it last year? Maybe it was last year about professional practices and about that, that growth in, in resources in those roughly decade since you published your book, Heather. And 
from those interviews, the questions it seemed like were, how do I get a gallery? Maybe how do I write an artist statement? Those were the two big ones that came up. How do I get a gallery? How do I write an artist statement? There are also small questions like, um, can I actually ask for insurance? <laughs> what do they pay for? <laughs> things like that. The, those things haven't really changed. And the answers to those questions have not changed. Um, but artists are still asking them and still kind of unaware. However, that can I, how do I get a gallery is shifting Mm. slightly so that's something yeah I mean I thought that was really interesting when we when we talked uh, months ago uh, you mentioned that you changed the word gallery from your first book to a venue for the second book do you want to talk a little bit about that yeah I think the art world is so much larger than what it was before I think the gallery world is so much larger than what it was before I mean some of the most interesting spaces out there now are spaces that are not necessarily in Chelsea or even in a gallery neighborhood in Bushwick they're all over. And I think a lot of artists have also realized that there are spaces that are non-art spaces that are better for their art than the actual, than the art spaces. So the world has kind of opened up in this way and through social media and through the internet. I mean, that's backing up to the, your question from before, Isaac. It's, the internet wasn't what it is today, <laughs> even 10, 10 years ago. Um, one of the reasons social media wasn't mentioned in the first edition of the book was because the publisher wasn't sure. We weren't sure together. It wasn't just them. It was both of us. We weren't sure whether Facebook was actually going to be a thing. Mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> so that seems so old. Yeah. Um, but that was one of the reasons we didn't talk about it back then. So yeah, artists have, d- have realized that there are a lot more venues out there. There are a lot more spaces to show their work that depending on their definition of success um, might bring them to their goals a lot faster than a traditional art space. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting to me because, uh, you know, if I'm putting on, if I'm putting on my, my negative Nancy hat and, and sort of saying, well, okay, there are all these additional venues. There's all these different ways for people to show art. You can put it on Instagram for free, but then you look at some of the stats around earnings and income and financial success. I mean, even forgetting showing at the MoMA because that's a crazy dream for most people, but I think it's not unreasonable if you're an artist to sort of say, oh, I want financial stability or I want to make more than $25,000 and live in New York City. You know, do, do you sort of see this new economy springing up as providing alternative mechanisms for artists to make a living or is our gallery model still the primary way for that sort of sustainable, profitable artist economy? Well, it's a complicated question because um, there are many art worlds. And so if we're talking about artists whose definition of success is to show in a Chelsea gallery, um, then yeah, galleries are still the main way to make your living. They're still the main way, the main source of income. Um, However, there are a lot of art worlds. There are a lot of really interesting art worlds outside of very traditional bigger galleries um, that are more attainable also. I think um, one fact that artists are starting to absorb is that every artist has a day job. That's going to sound very depressing. Um, But you mentioned a statistic about $25,000 a year that artists um, make. Our research came up with something much lower than that for most artists, especially emerging artists. We were talking to a lot of um, accountants when researching this book, and they said that after taxes, the amount of money a lot of artists were making was more in the $10,000 range. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the artists who are going to an accountant to get their taxes done. So that's maybe an, a little bit of an upper it's echelon. It's hard to do your taxes as an artist. It's hard to do your ta- <laughs> it is true. Everyone should actually get an accountant for this. But um, it's because, it's not because they're doing badly. It's because selling work in a gallery is definitely not the main source of income for most artists. And when I first started doing lectures associated with the book back in 2009-ish, um, when I said every artist has a day job, there would be lots of artists who would come up to me after and say, oh my God, you made me feel so much better. I didn't think I was a real artist. I've never considered myself a real artist, but I, because I still have to go to a different job during the day or at night or on the weekends or whatever. Um, but once you realize that there are, you, you have to have multiple sources of income when you're an artist, then it makes being an artist a lot more attainable. Um, and not to say there are some very successful emerging artists out there that do really well. Um, but in most cases, they have other income on the side, whether it has to do with their art or not. Another way that artists are making their money now is online. Like there are, it's not just putting your work up for free on Instagram. You can also put your work up on all different sites. There are all these third party sites that are helping you sell your fine artwork or the work associated with your fine artwork or your more commercial work. So there, there are lots of other ways of cobbling together a life as an artist now that I don't, that either weren't possible before or they were just never talked about before. That was one of the big points that came out when I was writing my piece was that success and like what success means as an artist, the definition of it has really opened up. Sharon Loudon is a is a big proponent of this. She's written several, or she's edited, I guess, several anthologies of essays by artists talking about how they have a sustainable practice. Um, and so I think that that's like a, that's an idea that's definitely gained traction mm-hmm. in the recent, in recent years. You know, I talked to a few people who were authors of other um, professional practice books, and they, a couple of them went to art school too. And they went, I think, in maybe like the 80s, 70s or 80s. And they they were talking about how it was seen as just like totally embarrassing if you had a day job, or if you had to admit that. Yeah, there were a few people when I was first researching the book um, way back for the first one that said artists can't, should not talk about their jobs. They um, should should keep it a secret. I don't want to know. There were some dealers that said, I don't want to know if an artist has a job. I don't want to know any of that. I only want to know what's going on in the studio. And I feel like that is really different um, now. If you if you were to say that to a group of artists now, I think there would be a very negative reaction in the room, uh, which is good. I think it, it, it doesn't make any sense because hiding part of your existence doesn't make any sense anymore. But a lot of artists also, their jobs have to do with their artwork or it's get, helping them get resources for their work or an audience for their work or a community for their work in sort of these other these other ways. So I don't think it's a bad thing necessarily. So when we think about how the art world has increasingly professionalized. We've talked about a few factors that are driving that, including the internet. Uh, One thing that, you know, Abby and I were talking before the podcast and, you know, we were also thinking that art school and the increasing cost burden of attending art school and the increasing professionalization across lots of creative fields uh, in response to extremely high tuitions for uh, degrees that typically do not yield the same level of income that other, you know, high expense uh, graduate degrees do. And and that kind of financial burden putting uh, an emphasis on professionalization on, you know, making making money essentially. I mean, how, how does the MFA 
art school market kind of fit into what we're seeing today? I think it's a dirty secret that um, attendance is dropping in these programs um, in the schools that are really expensive. And so they're doing everything they can to try to attract um, more students and more money and more parents who will buy into the idea that their child is going to be an artist. Um, so, yeah, a lot of schools are are starting these classes, which is why I feel slightly uncomfortable being in this space. <laughs> I'll be totally honest with you, because with the proliferation of professional practices, classes and workshops and all kinds of things, there are a lot of promises um, being made about how to make it in the art world. People are, they're promising, you know, I can help you get a gallery. I can help you navigate, um, the gallery world. I can help you make more money. I can help you write your artist statement effectively. When in actuality, all this advice really helps people who are already very confident in their own work and are working really hard in their studios and making something that is pushing their work forward, is pushing an idea forward, is conceptually interesting, especially in the art world that we're all in right now. Um, so, so you can get lots of advice, you can read lots of books, and it can go really nowhere. And some of these professional practices classes are charging a lot of money for it. And I feel extremely uncomfortable with those. So um, that said, there are, there are some really great classes out there. There's some really adv great advice being given and some really interesting um, kind-hearted, open-hearted people that are trying to help others and and foster community. And is the extreme cost of uh, MFA and grad programs kind of driving this increased interest in professionalization partially? Like people just really want to make sure that if they're going to spend all this money, they're pulling out every tool possible to recoup some sort of Increase well, they have some sort of guarantee that they're going to yeah. get something back. I think that's like, I feel like that's part of the equation with like the, here are the four steps you need to make it as an artist. Like I need a guarantee if I'm going to put down this much money for mm. an MFA program that I'm going to get a return. Yeah. It's kind of funny to me because like one thing that often gets not discussed at all because it's hard to integrate into this conversation is like the quality of the artist's work itself and like whether or not you're a good artist. That's a different podcast. Yeah, that yeah. is. Are you a good artist? Stay <laughs> tuned for the next, the next exactly. podcast. Yeah, I think that's one of the drivers and why professional practices classes are, are out there now in a lot more schools. It's that, you know, you've got to justify the cost. Um, but I think there's another reason too. I think as artists are given more tools to do things on their own and to admit that they're entrepreneurs or some of the stuff that was in the closet before and being hidden, like, like the day job and things like that are coming out into the fore, artists are having to, to figure out how to actually run a studio and they're taking responsibility for that. And I think also a lot of artists don't want to be known as the, um, sort of sloppy, not on time person who can't get it together or the person without health care who um, is struggling in a studio in a warehouse district. Like you, Some artists don't want to do that and they're still making really good work and they want to actually have health care. So um, they're looking really desperately for information on how to make that happen or to have a pension, have, you know, money for the future. As I'm getting older, I know a lot more artists who are getting older and artists who are older than me who are reaching an age where they 
they didn't have a backup plan. They didn't have a, a plan for the future. They just figured they would be cobbling together their income for the rest of their lives. And it gets a lot harder when you're much older. So, so there are a lot of um, issues that are that are being talked about that weren't talked about before. One thing that I also wanted to ask about is we've talked about the changing dynamics that are impacting artists, but kind of circling back all the way to what we were talking about at the beginning, which is galleries either being more receptive to artists kind of asking questions or galleries expecting artists to ask questions. A lot of the sort of financial issues that we've talked about with relation to artists also apply to galleries. And I think galleries too are having, especially in the middle market are and emerging too, are having uh, their own financial struggles and their own difficulties and their own conversations around professionalization. How do you sort of see this drive to professionalize more broadly across the art market outside of just artists? I do. I do think that galleries, especially that are working with emerging to mid-career artists are having a lot of issues, especially in New York. I'll talk about New York City. Yeah, I'm asking very provincial, like classic New Yorker provincial questions about this city. Yeah, in New York City, I think it's extremely difficult, extremely difficult. And I worked for one gallery, Mixed Greens, for 15 years and we were in Chelsea and it just became um, completely unsustainable for a gallery that was... um, dealing with emerging to mid-career artists to actually pay those types of rents. Um, so, and uh, you see that all over the Lower East Side. There are every, it feels like Artsy always has an article on the galleries that are closing, right? Um, so, and I think also gallerists are younger now and they're used to being, I think, a, I'm going to make a broad generalization right now, but used to being a little more collaborative in their efforts or um, they're seeking out other people's advice and other people's expertise in trying to help their business run. And that includes the artists. And so I did, I have seen over the years different um, galleries get together and try to pool resources to make it work. And that's happening in several galleries in New York where they share spaces and they flip the the space back and forth every other month or things like that. There are different models for how to make it work now. But one of the models is also to pull your artists in and to actually collaborate on the different strategies that, that might bring more people in or make more sales or get more press or whatever the case may be. So I think there is going to be a new model. I don't I can't tell you what it is because I don't know yet. <laughs> That'll but also think, be on the next podcast. So you got to listen to that one too. <laughs> there, there's going to be a new model, and um, someone's going to figure it out soon. Where I think artists and galleries are going to be more on an even playing field, and there's going to be a new way of um, generating income that is not only through the the sale of objects. It's got to mm-hmm. be something different because a lot of artists also aren't making objects anymore. So we have to figure that out. And I think it's it's good to have all this information out there because you can listen to it, you can go to the workshops, you can take the classes and decide at the end that none of it's for you. But that's that's a good outcome because you figured out what you don't want to do and you're not going to make as many mistakes when you get out. I feel like there are a lot of, in all industries, this is not just the art world, there are a lot of um, people who have been in the same career for a very long time and they when they're giving advice to younger people, they're like, well, this is how I did it. And and you justify um, the mistakes you made or the the 90 hours a week you were working or the whatever, the, you walked to school uphill in the snow or whatever, and you want the younger person to do the same thing, well, hopefully younger people will not have to do the same thing if all this information is out there. They'll make different mistakes, <laughs> not, but not the same ones, which is good.
All right, uh, Abby, let's start with you. Where are you going to be uh, drinking white wine in the art world this week? Well, this week I was editing a story about seven things you didn't know about the painter Edward Munch. And so I think I'm going to go see the show that just opened at the Met Breuer. Um, it's called Between the Clock and the Bed, named after one of his paintings of a man standing between a clock and a bed. Um, but apparently it's great. We have an intern who used to work at the Met and she's already seen it and she said it was fantastic. So he was apparently quite prolific. He painted something like, I think it's like a thousand paintings, like 4,000 drawings, and then like 15,000 prints and lithographs wow. while he was That's alive. Amazing. That is amazing. Yeah. And then he also wrote like 13,000 pages worth of text. Wow. Apparently some of it's like short story fragments, some of it's no like novel fragments. He wrote a lot of poetry. That's amazing. And Heather, what about you? What are you going to be checking out? I am excited to go to the Forward Union Fair. It is a social action fair that's organized by women in the art world this weekend. It's not just artists, but there are artists um, doing installations and performances and all kinds of things that relate to the politics of today. And there will be um, nonprofits having tables all over the fair that are interacting with the artists. And anyone can go and you walk around and learn about the amazing work that a lot of these social justice organizations are doing. And at the same time, you maybe will drink tea with Siobhan Nichols or see a music performance by Rudy Shepard or a whole bunch of other things. Where is it? It is 714 Broadway downtown on Saturday and Sunday. Is this the first time it's happened or have you been before? It was there. It was last year also, but this year I'm involved with organizing it. So that's why I'm promoting it right now. Um, it happened right after the election last year. Oh. So a bunch of women got together and did it really fast in three weeks last year. And it's a pretty amazing space. And I will, I'm actually going to plug a show that I, that I saw over Thanksgiving a weekend. I'm definitely going to mispronounce this, but it, it was called a uh, Revolutia Demonstrata, and it was it's a show of Soviet art uh, from 1917 uh, around the period. Well, not all from 1917. Sort of following the October Revolution of 1917 in Russia, and it's a really compelling exhibition uh, of lots of different um, mediums, painting, kind of propaganda posters, photographs, uh, ceramics that comes at this incredible moment in Russian history where artists are really involved in imagining and creating a society and a economy that has never existed before. Like what does, you know, a socialist country look like? This is just a new idea. Uh, this, the art of this period is really important and engaged in like very lofty uh, political debates that, that help you think through some of the more abstract political ideas that we're also playing out at this time. So anyway, highly recommend to anyone who is in Chicago. I was going to say not in New York. Not New York is in Chicago, and uh, if you're Bolshevik, highly recommend. Uh, if you're part, if you're a white army person, maybe maybe pass. But anyway, um, it was a great show. Okay, so that's all we have time for. Thanks so much to Heather for joining us here, and of course Abby. Please remember to rate and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. We'd love to hear from you. You can shoot us an email at podcast at artsy.net with any comments you have. See you next time. Our producer this week, as always, associate editor Abigail Kane. The theme music is by Broke for Free. <laughs>